Government managers are supposed to use data-driven approaches to decision-making. That's what the Army is doing in trying to recruit more candidates to ROTC and to boost a flagging effort at regular soldier enlistment. I talked about this with Brigadier General Alex Fink, Chief of Army Enterprise Marketing, a relatively new unit of the Army placed in Chicago. We started with some of the trends prompting this new approach. And in general, has ROTC enrollment been level? Has it been declining down? I mean, it was not too many years ago where colleges even went back to letting ROTC come on board in a lot of cases. Yeah. So uh, we have not failed uh, in our mission uh, within a cadet command, which manages ROTC in in modern history. So we are always, we're not doing, and, and that's that's partly not necessarily the, the the challenge that we're having here is sufficient quantity. It really is a quality uh, uh, sort of campaign. And so what we have seen, uh, sort of the, the early indicators, are the number of applications that we get for, say, the four-year scholarship, okay? Uh, and it's no, you know, we've, we've seen this. There was, there's been recent articles about the drop in applications amongst the service academies. Colleges have fewer people, even, even, you know, ACT and SAT tests are having fewer people take those. So that, that, that what we're seeing within our Army ROTC is not that much different than other indicators, but it is concerning. And so how do we ensure that we have the highest quality uh, college bound youth keeping the Army uh, and the opportunity to serve as an army officer in their consideration set. And so that's why this campaign was, and it, it really is to drive kids to, to, um, you know, college bound youth to complete the four year ROTC scholarship. We want to get, we want to get more applicants, uh, doing this, uh, obviously more applications. Uh, we get, uh, we have a better, a better opportunity to, to select the best, but even those who don't get selected, they, you know, they've shown some propensity to to the Army, and when they get on campus, there's always opportunities uh, for, for scholarships, three-year scholarships, Army Reserve and, and National Guard offer Minuteman scholarships. Sometimes there's local alumni scholarships, and those cadre on those college campuses, they, they know where to get that. And so, you know, even if they don't get the four-year national scholarship uh, that, that the Army provides, they can still get the three-year or they can find local scholarships on campus through the, the cadres. They really becomes, you know, a great opportunity to develop a, a good pool of, of uh, prospects that we can uh, hopefully, you know, convince to, to, to think about ROTC. And getting back to the marketing function of the Army writ large, are you also applying this data-driven approach and this new marketing techniques approach to the general enlistment where the Army, as the other armed services, has really struggled in the last couple of years? Absolutely. In fact, uh, we launched a couple of campaigns earlier this year. Uh, one of them was called Know Your Army. Uh, then I had a companion campaign called Passions. And very different uh, campaigns in terms of how they look and feel, but designed to work together in market. And I'll get to the, the strategy behind that was, uh, we and we knew a year ago that this was going to be a tough year between marketing and, and recruiting command, uh, Um We knew that this was going to be a challenging year. And so we even, we started working back then, what do we, you know, what's our strategy? And when you understand your market at a fairly granular level like we do, that gives you options uh, about how, you, how you're going to approach a mission. And so one of the things we did was we know that 
know, bringing folks in who are less propensed, you know, way down, you know, they really, they have no connection whatsoever to the, to the army or to the military or any of that. That's going to be a, that's a longer sell. We don't have a long time, right? We have a short period of time. And so we're going to put a finite campaign in market. It's not going to last forever, but we've got a one, we've got a problem that's going to be hopefully, you know, it's a longer term problem, but we, you know, sometimes you have to shore up the challenges you have right now. And this was a an opportunity to shore that up. And so we found audiences that had familiarity with the army. They were open to the idea, but there was something that was preventing them from becoming a lead. And so we're trying to figure out what is that something that was preventing them from becoming a lead. Um, and, and part of that was just the understanding of benefits, right? Both tangible benefits and um, less tangible benefits. And so they said, well, we need to explain this better, right? And so the Know Your Army campaign was very practical, the very practical benefits you get in the Army that a lot of us who've served for years take for granted. But, you know, those who aren't familiar with that, don't, don't know about it. And so really it was about explaining those very tangible benefits. And then the second one was really about the intangible benefits, the passion, the elements of the connection piece you get from joining the army. And so these work together really well. What we didn't see was bringing necessarily a lot of new people into what we call the funnel. But what we did see was moving people who are already in the funnel to convert down to become leads. And, you know, we've seen over a 30, 35% increase in contracts uh, connected, connected right to that campaign just since we launched in the April, May timeframe. So back to the, the data element, we can, we see, we can see very clearly that the campaign attracted who we thought it would attract. It got them to become leads and now they're converting to, to contracts. And in many cases, they've already shipped the basic training. It seems like if you could get 10% of the kids that play these video games that are shoot them up, root them up types of things, you'd be in clover. <laughs> So uh, that is part of our, that's part of the mix, uh, for sure. Gaming, gaming and gamers are, are, are certainly, certainly part of that where we place ads. I was going to say you could place an ad and say, hey, kids, you can do this for real and <laughs> reach well, a lot of eyeballs and, and that fact, way. The, the passions element, the passions campaign was specifically about, hey, listen, you, if you, if this is your thing, right, and let's just say if, you know, going outside and, you know, climbing mountains is your thing, right, you can do that in the Army. If learning, if, if using code on a computer and writing code is your thing, you can do that in the army. And that was what, so you can follow, the idea was everybody's got a passion, everybody's got a thing, and you can do that thing uh, in the army. And that takes me back to the, if I could, just back to the decide to lead campaign, you know, and what's, what's the thing about that one? What, what's, what's the creative strategy around that? And it's, it's around the decide to lead. So, you know, our, our whole point here is that it's leadership is not, you're not born with it. You're not, you're not destined to it. You don't inherit it. You can't buy it. It's a choice. Uh, and quite frankly, anybody can make that choice. You know, it takes some, you know, you've got to have some grit. You've got to have, uh, you've got to have some sort of high achieving mentality, but anybody can make a choice to lead. If you look at our senior leaders across the army, there's nothing really that defines them from a personality perspective, right? They've all, they all come from different, different places, you know, you've got introverts, extroverts. I mean, they're all over the board when it comes to their, their personality styles. It's not like you know, it's just a one size. Anybody can choose to do it. And and so it's uh, it's a choice. And that's what we call it. Decide to lead. Brigadier General Alex Fink is chief of Army Enterprise Marketing. Find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive and hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. 
Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Shane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? 
well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And 
a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? I said, uh, um, okay, so, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right? And diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.